In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number nine, the story of Woodrow Wilson's shocking remarriage to the widow sometimes called America's first female president. It was October 1919, and 62-year-old President Woodrow Wilson was down for the count. Paralyzed on his left side and only intermittently conscious, he could barely speak during the brief intervals where he did awaken. He'd been poised to run for a third term until his second stroke happened. Now he couldn't even swallow unassisted. It seemed inevitable that the vice president would take over. But before anyone could even breathe the words transition of power, the controversial first lady stepped in. Edith Wilson knew the president would want to serve out his term. So she made a few changes at the White House, a few drastic changes. From now on, anyone who wanted to see or speak to the president would have to go through his wife. She decided which matters were worth troubling him in his convalescent state. She read his mail to him, advised him, and relayed his decisions to the cabinet. If his appointees disrespected her, she fired them. Nearly a year before women's suffrage became the law of the land, Mrs. Edith Bowling Wilson was effectively the first female president of the United States. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. Today, we're digging into the story of President Woodrow Wilson's 1915 remarriage. Without even completing the traditional one-year mourning period for his deceased wife, Wilson met, courted, and proposed to a younger woman who claimed she wanted nothing to do with politics. She had no idea that someday she'd be called upon to secretly govern in his stead. We'll explore their fast-paced love story and the scandalous rumors it spawned right after this. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In many ways, Woodrow Wilson, as a man and as a president, was a study in contradictions. To some degree, Wilson was an advocate for the marginalized. He fought to end child labor and supported unions in seeking an eight-hour workday. He was a proponent of immigration. And yet, he was also an avowed white supremacist who called the Ku Klux Klan a veritable empire of the South. All things considered, it's not surprising that Wilson's romantic life was also full of hypocrisy and unexpected twists. He was very much in love with his first wife, Ellen Wilson, 
the couple raised three daughters together and were by all accounts blissfully happy for their first 22 years of marriage. Then, in 1907, while vacationing without his wife in Bermuda, Wilson fell for someone else, Mary Hulbert Peck. At a time when marriages were difficult to dissolve, she was a happy 44-year-old, soon-to-be divorcee. She summered in New York and wintered in Bermuda. When they met, 50-year-old Wilson was convalescing after what's now believed to have been a minor stroke. Even after he physically recovered, his loved ones reported changes in his personality. He was more irritable, less patient, and less flexible. But meeting Mary changed everything. He finally started to feel like himself again. It's not clear whether the relationship included physical intimacy. Regardless, Mary and Wilson developed a strong emotional bond, referring to each other in their letters as best beloved and dearest friend. The pair agreed to meet in Bermuda almost every winter. In between visits, they were constant pen pals. Ellen Wilson knew about her husband's correspondence with Mary, but she let it go, perhaps in part because she saw how much joy Mary brought to the ailing Wilson at a time when his career was full of strife. In October of 1910, Wilson announced he was running as a Democrat for governor of New Jersey. His campaign sharply criticized political insiders and promised dramatic reforms. When Election Day came on November 8th, the people of New Jersey bought into Wilson's promises. He won by a 50,000-vote margin. The people's faith was rewarded. Within months, Governor Wilson made significant strides towards rooting out corruption in the Garden State. Governor Woodrow Wilson became one of the most popular Democratic politicians in America. So naturally, when it came time to recruit candidates for the 1912 presidential election, he topped the shortlist. When the Democratic National Convention arrived at the end of June, Wilson emerged victorious. There were two Republican candidates running that year, which split their party's vote meaning that Wilson coasted to the presidency without winning a majority of the popular vote. So in 1913, at the age of 56, Woodrow Wilson moved into the White House. Unfortunately, the victory was soon shadowed by tragedy. By that summer, Ellen was complaining of exhaustion in the summer heat. Over the next year, she was getting weaker by the day. The First Lady was suffering from kidney inflammation. By August of 1914, it was clear the condition was terminal. Ellen spent her last days making her daughters and the White House staff promise to take good care of her husband. She worried that his already fragile health would fail in her absence. Then, on August 6th, she passed. Woodrow Wilson wandered the halls of the White House that night in a state of utter gloom and panic, crying out, My God, what am I to do? He even considered resigning his office. That same day, Wilson took time to send a letter to Mary Peck. Of course, Mary felt deeply for the president's loss. But now, the man she loved was a widower. Perhaps their time had finally come. Or almost come. Wilson would have to properly mourn his wife first. 
A well-mannered woman like Mary would never have considered intruding upon the formal one-year grieving period after the death of a spouse. This tradition was a holdover from the Victorian era. Though it was no longer considered mandatory to wear black for an entire year, the newly bereaved were expected to mourn for 12 months. That meant no partying, no visible happiness, and most importantly, absolutely no dating or remarriage. So even as Wilson and Mary continued writing letters throughout the fall of 1914, they never discussed betrothal. Wilson was likely planning to wed Mary once it was socially acceptable for him to do so. But then, in March of 1915, something interrupted that trajectory. The president's personal physician, Dr. Grayson, took him out for a drive. The doctor hoped this would lift Wilson's spirits. The president had been listless ever since Ellen died. And the conflict in Europe wasn't helping. The events that would drag the United States into World War I were well underway. At first, President Wilson just sat staring out the window. But then Dr. Grayson slowed the car to greet two women he knew. When Wilson's eyes fell on the older of the pair, the president was surprised by a familiar feeling. The same one he had that day on the beach in Bermuda when he first met Mary Peck. As the car sped away, the 59-year-old president asked his doctor about the curvy woman with the bright blue eyes and warm smile. He learned that her name was Edith Bowling Galt, that she was 43 years old, and that she'd been widowed for seven years. Woodrow Wilson was already mourning one woman and in love with another. But from the moment he first laid eyes on Edith, he knew he'd do anything to make her his second first lady. That's up next. Hi, it's Kate. From trauma surgeons to hospice staff, we all know that medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal, but hurt? In the new podcast series, Medical Murders, you'll discover a disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join my dear friend, host Alastair Merton, as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the story. In March 1915, 59-year-old President Woodrow Wilson met 43-year-old widow Edith Bowling Galt. 
For nearly eight years, he'd been secretly in love with his dear friend, Mary Peck. But Edith changed all that. Dr. Grayson saw the spark in Wilson's eye when he learned that Edith was not presently married. The doctor decided to prescribe a new course of treatment for Wilson's depression. Plenty of time spent with Edith Galt. Unfortunately, the woman in question wasn't on board. When Dr. Grayson asked her directly if she would call on the president as a friend, she declined. She had no interest in politics, and she didn't want to intrude in Wilson's time of grief. It had only been seven months since his wife Ellen died. The presidential physician didn't give up. He introduced Edith to President Wilson's younger cousin, Helen. Once the women hit it off, Dr. Grayson approached Helen with a sneaky plan. She would lure Edith to the White House for tea by assuring her that the president wasn't at home. Then, Dr. Grayson would arrange for President Wilson to arrive home early and find Edith there. It went off without a hitch. Edith and Helen were in the White House sitting room when the president and his doctor returned from golfing. Wilson spent the rest of the afternoon entertaining Edith and Helen. It was the most engaged he'd been at a social occasion since Ellen's death. From that point on, the president had his heart set on courting Edith. Morning period be damned. He sent her roses and invited her to romantic dinners at the White House. Then, on May 3rd of 1915, less than two months after their first meeting, President Woodrow Wilson proposed to Edith Bowling Galt on the porch of the White House. And... She declined. Woodrow Wilson might have forgotten about the mourning period, but Edith hadn't. She found the proposal inappropriate. The next day, Edith told Helen that she saw Woodrow Wilson only as a friend. That's right. Edith Galt was perhaps the first woman to friend zone a sitting president. But she didn't close the door entirely. Instead, Edith decided to spend more time with Wilson to try to get to know him as a man, not just a president. For the next week, they passed almost every waking moment together, on the presidential yacht, at the presidential retreat in Cornish, and at the White House. On May 7th, Edith watched as Woodrow Wilson debated how to respond to the German sinking of the British ocean liner Lusitania, with 128 Americans on board. She must have known even then that if she married him, her husband might well be a wartime president, and then she would be a wartime first lady. She'd be expected to set an example for the nation's women on how to weather the war, and her husband would be under constant, unbearable stress. Even so, Edith decided to follow her heart, and her heart had shifted. On May 10, 1915, Edith told the president she would be delighted to be his bride. This was the only good news Woodrow Wilson got all week. His reluctance to use military force against the Germans had drawn intense criticism, and he was slowly coming to the conclusion that Edith had already reached. War was inevitable. At least now he could look forward to a wedding. Wilson wrote Edith more than 200 love letters that summer, even though they continued to spend a great deal of time together. In one, he extolled, Nobody can glorify or complete my life or give me happiness as you can. 
There was just one bone of contention remaining between the newly engaged couple. Edith wanted to keep their engagement a secret and marry after the 1916 election. She likely feared their courtship would hurt her fiancé's re-election chances. President Wilson was having none of this. He wrote letter after letter impressing upon Edith how desperate he was to have her as his wife as soon as possible. Based on Edith's traditional ideas about marriage, the couple probably weren't sleeping together during their engagement. And it seems like the president was having a hard time waiting. Edith, meanwhile, knew how much the war was weighing on Wilson. She also knew having a wife to come home to would help him survive this trying time. So after resisting for several weeks, Edith agreed that they could be married that very year in 1915. After the one-year anniversary of Ellen's death, of course, and as late in the year as possible, the couple finally settled on December 18th as the latest date that wouldn't conflict with Christmas celebrations. Still, they had to wait until fall to announce their courtship. Until then, they met only in places the Secret Service could easily clear of observers. To that end, Edith began golfing more frequently. Out on the green, there were no news cameras. Finally, in mid-September, the news could be kept secret no more. The president wanted to take his fiancée to an upcoming World Series game. Therefore, the world and his three daughters would have to be told about Edith. The first daughters were thrilled for their dad. They had worried he would decline and perhaps even die of a broken heart after Ellen died. Now they saw how new love had rejuvenated him. But the democratic political machine wasn't on board. They feared the engagement would kill Wilson's re-election bid. A group of political advisors got together to make one last desperate attempt to stop the 1915 wedding. They decided to tell the president that Mary Peck was about to sell her archive of Wilson's letters to the highest bidder. To be clear, there was little truth to this. Mary Peck never sold any letters while Wilson was alive. But the president's inner circle knew that faced with such a threat, Wilson would have to tell Edith about Mary. And they hoped Wilson would even break off the engagement to protect Edith's honor. After all, she would be scorned if she married a man whose past infidelities were public knowledge. A gentleman would sooner break a lady's heart than put her through such an ordeal. When the president heard about Mary's supposed plan to sell his letters, his shoulders slumped. He walked slowly out of the room. That night, he asked Edith to speak with him privately. His advisors must have been high-fiving after he left. Surely now the president was going to speak to his fiancée about pausing or breaking off their engagement. Not quite. The love-struck Wilson didn't have the heart to deliver the news himself, so he sent his physician and confidant, Dr. Grayson, instead. As Edith listened quietly, Dr. Grayson explained exactly what had transpired between the president and Mary Peck. Then he warned Edith that their letters might soon be published, which would surely spawn an avalanche of malicious gossip. The news hit Edith like a ton of bricks. Without addressing the question of their engagement, she asked Dr. Grayson to leave her for the evening. After he did so, 
Edith found herself contemplating the pressures of Wilson's job. If he could handle a wartime presidency, she could handle people poking fun at her. She decided to write a note telling him the engagement was still on. Only the president was too afraid of reading a Dear John message to open her letter. It took him two days, spent sulking around the presidential bedroom, to even build up the courage to ask her directly if she would still marry him. When the couple finally saw each other again and agreed to marry as planned, Wilson, ecstatic, immediately informed his advisors of the happy news. Disappointed, they slunk off to drown their sorrows. They were sure their candidate had just lost the 1916 election in one fell swoop. But they'd done their best to stop him, and the wedding bells were still ringing. The couple made their announcement in early October 1915. They ensured the papers mentioned Edith's many virtues. She was independently wealthy, thanks to inheriting from her late husband, eminently fashionable, well-read, and directly related to the Native American princess Pocahontas. Wilson and Edith hoped that little detail would give the public something to talk about besides the timeline of their relationship. No such luck. Naturally, the papers had a field day with the news. One particular point of contention was the fact that Ellen's grave didn't yet have a headstone when Edith and Wilson started dating. People whispered, Can you believe that man? Proposing to another woman while his wife lay in an unmarked grave? And that wasn't the ugliest thing they said about Edith's relationship to the president either. One Washington newspaper printed a crude Q&A joke. What did Mrs. Galt do when the president asked her to marry him? Answer? Fell out of bed. Worst of all was a typographical error that reportedly appeared in the Washington Post. In an article about Wilson taking Edith to the theater, a reporter wrote, The president spent the evening entertaining Mrs. Galt. But the typesetter was either careless or mischievous, because the morning edition read, The president spent the evening entering Mrs. Galt. Upon discovering the error, the Post immediately printed a corrected edition and dispatched staff to try to stop newsstands from selling the version with the error. Still, the damage was done. The relationship was officially the butt of dirty jokes. Worse yet, a rumor began circulating around in Washington. Edith and Wilson had begun seeing each other while Ellen was still alive. The rumor evolved, as they tend to do, into an even more scandalous version. Within a matter of weeks, people were theorizing that President Wilson and Edith had actually murdered Ellen together. This was a completely unsubstantiated lie. But the truth has never gotten in the way of a good political conspiracy theory. The president even received a sharp rebuke from a particularly close source, Mary Peck. By the time he wrote to tell her about his engagement, Mary had already learned of the upcoming nuptials from the papers. She didn't hold back in her reply, writing, The cold piece of utter renunciation is about me, and the shell that is Mary Peck still functions. 
The obvious sense of rejection in Mary's response to the president's engagement is perhaps the clearest evidence that she and Wilson were more than friends. By mid-October, the rumors were bothering Edith, too. This was exactly why she initially proposed marrying after the election. But Wilson still wanted to move forward with the wedding and damn the torpedoes. Including the literal torpedoes being exchanged in the North Atlantic. Wilson was desperate to think about something besides the war. He clung to the wedding to save his sanity. But, ever the gentleman, he did ask Edith if she wanted to break things off. Wilson promised he'd understand if she couldn't handle the scrutiny. But Edith, however put off by the nasty rumors, was a woman of her word. She told the president that she'd agreed to marry him and she had no intention of breaking her promise. The wedding was on. Unfortunately, as much strife and controversy as Wilson and Edith endured during their betrothal, there was more to come after their marriage. And Edith might have run for the hills if she knew what she'd have to do for her husband in just a few short years. That's coming up next. And now, back to the story. In the fall of 1915, Edith Bolingalt and Woodrow Wilson struggled to weather the scandal of their engagement. They were accused of adultery and even rumored to have murdered Wilson's first wife together. Still, the pair was glad to finally be able to go out together now that their engagement was public. And planning for their wedding kept Edith busy while Wilson buried himself in his depressing work. With World War I looming, Edith was the only thing that brought the president any joy. November came and then December, and suddenly the pendulum of public opinion took a swing. Not two months after the president's engagement announcement drew widespread outrage, voters started sending wedding gifts to the White House. President Wilson wasn't the only person in the United States who needed a distraction from the war. As the Christmas season started and the wedding date of December 18th drew nearer, a presidential wedding sounded like the perfect palate cleanser for a nation tired of thinking about tragedy. The couple decided to make their wedding as small as possible in recognition of the fact that it was a second marriage for both of them. They wed at Edith's home rather than the White House. Only immediate family members were invited. As soon as they were pronounced man and wife, the happy newlyweds dodged the press and escaped to Virginia for a brief honeymoon. There, they rented out a resort known for its natural hot springs. It was the most privacy and the most carefree life they would ever know as a married couple. Far too soon, though, it was back to the White House for the Wilsons, where they were forced to reckon with current events. Edith, for all her professions of disinterest in politics, proved to be an incredibly active first lady. Rather than spend her time planning White House receptions, she acted as her husband's personal aide. They answered all his mail together and discussed his most important decisions. Arguably, Wilson broke presidential protocol by constantly sharing classified information about the war with his new bride. He even taught her how to decode the high-priority messages that came in as secret ciphers. Edith Wilson was more involved in matters of national security than the vice president, Thomas Marshall. This might have alarmed the public, 
But they didn't learn of Edith's insider role in the administration. Not yet. In fact, she became a surprisingly beloved first lady. Wilson's devotion to his wife was obvious. His gaze hardly ever left her, no matter how many foreign leaders or high political officials were in the room. His constant, unself-conscious displays of affection melted even the most hardened of hearts. Edith's presence in the White House even seemed to help, rather than hurt, Woodrow Wilson's 1916 re-election bid. He squeaked by with 49.2% of the vote to his opponent's 46.1%. At the time, presidents had no term limits. So Wilson could have sought to repeat his success with a third term. And if his health had held up, this story might have ended with Mr. and Mrs. Wilson hitting the campaign trail, winning another election, and going down in history as an incredibly savvy political couple. Instead, on the evening of October 2, 1919, a tragedy turned the Wilsons' controversial marriage into the most unique arrangement in presidential history. 62-year-old Wilson was spent after a difficult year involving a flu pandemic that killed nearly 700,000 Americans, mass unemployment, labor strikes, fears of a communist revolution, and the difficult negotiations to end the First World War. Proclaiming exhaustion, he took to his bed, where he suffered a stroke. He woke with his entire left side paralyzed. He had to relearn how to speak. At first, he could only moan. The doctors said he'd recover slowly, if at all. Edith's influence over her husband was great. If she told him to transfer power to the vice president, he would do it. But if she kept the public from realizing how severe his condition was, he wouldn't have to relinquish the presidency. For the past four years, Edith had been effectively running the country alongside her husband. She knew everything he knew. Not only that, she knew how he felt about things. If the vice president took office, he'd do things his own way. But Edith would do things Woodrow Wilson's way. And she believed that her husband had both the right and the desire to serve out his entire second term. So, her decision was made. Insisting that he needed rest, which indeed was the doctor's prescription, Edith became Wilson's gatekeeper. No memo reached his eyes, no letter crossed his desk, and certainly no meeting was scheduled with him without her approval. From October 2nd, 1919, until the end of Wilson's second term in March of 1921, the First Lady alone would decide which matters were important enough to bring to the President. If he had a reply, Edith related. Even his cabinet usually had to be content with exchanging notes rather than seeing the President. Edith called this period her stewardship. Historians have argued it was her presidency. In her own memoir, Edith rejected this idea. She admitted that the president never physically recovered from his stroke. Still, she insisted she never overtly influenced any of his decisions. Even when she wrote his official correspondence, she claimed it was only because his hands shook. She was merely taking dictation. All of this happened behind doors so tightly closed, 
even the vice president couldn't enter. So we'll never really know exactly who was the acting commander-in-chief during the final years of Woodrow Wilson's second term. Still, there are some clues as to the truth in the historical record, including in the law itself. Between September 30th, two days before the stroke, and November 18, 1919, 28 bills passed by Congress became law without Wilson's signature. At the time, the president had 10 days to either sign or veto newly passed legislation. If he failed to do either, the bill would become law by default. Before his stroke, Wilson had almost always signed legislation passed by Congress. It was customary for the president to sign any bill he didn't oppose. As the New York Times accurately speculated that fall, Edith Wilson was doing all her husband's reading. Any bill she didn't think he would want to veto wasn't shown to him at all. In other words, the First Lady was effectively deciding which bills should become law, a duty explicitly assigned in the U.S. Constitution to the President. As reporters started to notice that something had changed in the White House, Edith fought back. If the public knew exactly how incapacitated her husband was, Congress or the Supreme Court might force him to relinquish power. So the First Lady escalated Wilson's isolation. She locked the White House gates, stopped all public tours, and ordered the servants to keep the curtains closed at all times. The Oval Office became a mausoleum for Woodrow Wilson, guarded by his wife. Once, a group of officials stormed the gates and demanded to see the president, claiming they had vital information for his eyes only. They were stopped short when Edith calmly replied, I am not interested in the President of the United States. I am interested in my husband and his health. She was telling the truth. Edith had never wanted anything to do with this kind of power. She hadn't wanted to call on the grieving president in 1915. She at first declined to marry him, and she certainly never dreamed of taking over his job. Now, she was just doing her best to keep the love of her life alive. If anyone was motivated to expose Wilson's true condition, it was Vice President Thomas Marshall who stood to gain the presidency. But he knew better than to underestimate the force that was Edith. If he succeeded in usurping the president, Marshall would have to watch his back for the rest of his life. Edith would blame him for any downturn in her husband's condition as a result of being forced to resign. So he declined to push for a transfer of presidential power, even when others advised him to do so. Marshall would later reportedly tell the New York Times, no politician ever exposes himself to the hatred of a woman, particularly if she's the wife of the President of the United States. One man, Secretary of State Robert Lansing, did expose himself to Edith's ire. In early 1920, he staged what was effectively a mutiny. He began holding cabinet meetings without the president. By this time, Wilson was well enough to discuss affairs of state with Edith, but his stroke had affected his judgment. Through Edith, he demanded Lansing's resignation, and on February 13th, he received it. The following month, 
One Maryland newspaper said what by now everyone was thinking. It openly called Mrs. Wilson the acting president and expressed nothing but deference and admiration for her. Of course, not everyone had such a positive take on the situation. There were plenty of people who wanted Wilson to resign. Among them was Sigmund Freud, who eventually published a psychoanalysis arguing that the sick president had no possibility of recovery. But Edith prevailed, against all odds. Wilson remained in office until March 4, 1921, when Warren G. Harding was inaugurated. After the end of the Wilson presidency, whichever Wilson was really president, the couple retired to their home in Washington, D.C., Mrs. Wilson cared for her husband until he died on February 3, 1924, at the age of 67. Edith went on to live to the ripe old age of 89, dying on December 28, 1961. In her golden years, she established a Woodrow Wilson Museum in the nation's capital and donated her husband's papers to the Library of Congress. Those papers included hundreds of touching love letters. They've since been scanned and are now available online. One can scarcely get through the opening sentences of any of them without feeling moved. In June of 1915, long before the couple came out with their relationship, Wilson wrote to Edith, My dearest sweetheart, there is no one else in the world for me now. There is nothing worthwhile but love. A bit of unintentional foreshadowing, because in Woodrow Wilson's last years, there really, truly was no one else in his world. Edith became the everything to him that he always told her she was, including, arguably, his surrogate president. Here's hoping she won't be the last woman to hold the office, just the last to do so covertly. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 8, the twisted story of an undercover CIA officer outed and named in print, allegedly on the orders of Vice President Dick Cheney's chief of staff. Among the many sources we used in researching this episode, we found the book Madam President, The Secret Presidency of Edith Wilson by William Hazelgrove particularly helpful. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, listeners. 
Before we go, I hope you remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.